الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على خاتم الأنبياء أشرف المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد in the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam especially in the things before the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam there are some things that are well known like uh, when we discussed about Ibrahim alayhi salam and Ismail alayhi salam most people know about these things even if they don't know the authentic from week and it's always good to revise anyway but then there is a lot that really we kind of skip and it's very important like for example who was the first one that covered the Kaaba and what is authentic from week about it how did the, uh, the, the Jewish tribes the Yehudis enter Medina and why were there and this is a very important aspect of Islam for us to know with the authentic evidences. Why, as many of you and us who are involved in da'wah, many times these questions come up. You know, what happened in Khaybar? What happened with Banu Nadir and Banu Qanuqa'a and Banu Quraidha? All of these issues get brought up. And if we don't know, then we just kind of guess at it. Right? But when we know, alhamdulillah, in the light of authentic knowledge, then it helps us answer these questions. Secondly, today we will begin with some of the miracles related to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Some people are under the misconception that the Prophet sallallahu only had the miracle of the Quran. And this is incorrect. Any alim from the ulema of Islam, if you look in the tarikh or seerah or even kutub of aqeedah, no doubt that the Quran is the greatest miracle given to the Prophet sallallahu a miracle that is still between our hands, we still have it, alhamdulillah. But no alim of Islam has doubted the fact that the Prophet sallallahu was also given other miracles, like the splitting of the moon, which is mentioned in the Quran and Sahih Ahadith, mutawatiran. But today we have these brothers and sisters and some people are on YouTube that have no reason to be on YouTube. Or, or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, and they're out there saying there's no actual miracles, only the Quran and this. But this is the weakness of their understanding and the, and the ignorance of their uh, research. When we discuss miracles, we will mention a few rules we're going to be using for these durus. One, we will only depend on authentic narrations. Those that are mentioned through weak Asanid through weak chains, whether the weakness is in the matan or sanad, we will not discuss those. Why? Because we want to establish our understanding on the authentic evidences. Having said that, some of the miracles are mentioned in the Quran. Alhamdulillah, that's an evidence. With it, we will also be mentioning those miracles that are, were there before the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam that are related to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi that have authentically be established. But the establishment of those is not done through first-hand reports because they are so far behind. Rather, they are established through those from the Sahaba and others who documented this and then the chain is, is checked up to them who attributed to them. So those will be mentioned as well. The miracles that were done during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ will also be looked at from the authenticity of the chains of narrators and the matan. But, but also they will be only accepted from first-hand reports, meaning those Sahaba that physically saw it themselves. So this is just some rules I wanted to lay down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted all of the Anbiya different 
ways for people to know that they were true prophets. Different miracles. I and mean, this is not something people should be surprised. Like Ibrahim alayhi salam, we discussed him being thrown in the fire, and Musa alayhi salam, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala split the ocean, and the birth of Isa alayhi salatu salam. Like that, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi was given many. In my last series, I mentioned that we will be going over 3,000 reports. Okay? That doesn't mean 3,000 different incidences, but 3,000 different narrations that establish different miracles throughout the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam from before his birth, from during his life, and some of them that came true after his passing from this dunya. Uh, inshallah, today we'll go over some, and those that are tulab and that have hirs, that have that love, uh, should try to document them, number them. I have numbered them through my notes, but you guys should also. And that's one of the benefits of the recordings. When you are, if you are here and you listen, it's good to then revise it at home and take your notes as well. Tayyib. Imam Ibn Kathir, in Bidaya wa Nihaya, and Al-Zahabi, in his Yar Alam al-Nubala, Abu Ishaq, and then his student Ibn Hisham, and others, they have mentioned this report through many different chains. It has been reported through many of the Sahaba that brought a lot of this knowledge when they became Muslim and so on, about a dam that was in Yemen. This was a dam to reserve water in Yemen. If you want to look it up, it is still standing. I mean, this is one of those things where you can verify it even by going and seeing it yourself today. About, the ulema have said that about one-fourth of it is still standing in place. And this was originally constructed about 1750 BC according to Western historians. Right? I'm going to give both the Islamic historians and Western historians accounts of this uh, yani, dam. And it's a very important part of the, the as related to the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But a lot of things that happened in the past, we have no traces for. Like Qawm al-Aad and Thamud and so on. Thamud you have buildings and so on. But Qawm al-Aad for example, we don't have any evidence of their existence except what we believe in the Quran and Sahih Ahadith. But some of these things you can actually go see them and that's pretty interesting. Yani, we don't, we don't sightsee, like as Muslims, I don't, I don't understand this idea of going and looking at the Eiffel Tower, like, it's a metal tower, what's so great about it, right? But it is always interesting to me, like when I go to Medina and so on, when you go to Badr, when you go to Uhud, when you go to these places, just to get an understanding of the context of that which we study. Like when you see Uhud, and you see how big Uhud is, it's not just like one peak either, like it's a whole range that's all together Uhud. Then you understand the ahadith where Rasulullah talked about giving gold the size of mountain of Uhud or somebody in Jahannam and their molar teeth will be the size of Uhud. Then you're like, wow, okay, that makes sense. When you see Badr and the wells and so on, it gives you an understanding. So this is an interesting place in Yemen and I've never been to Yemen. Never been to Yemen. But if I ever do go to Yemen, I would love to go and see this place. But you can see pictures of it. And this is during the... Uh, Hamyar dynasty, Mamlak al-Hamyar. And this was a period ruled by a particular group of kings. And here, according to Islamic historians, they said about 1500 years before Isa salam, and some of them, they mentioned 1500 years uh, before the time when Abraha attacked and so on. But 
we're, we're giving that roundabout time. And we know between Rasulullah and Isa ibn Maryam was about 600 years. Now, 600 years between Isa ibn Maryam and Rasulullah Muhammad is mentioned in Sahih Ahadith, so that we can verify. Regarding before that, when exactly the dam was built, we have no authentic narration that we can depend on giving a time frame. But the ulema of tarikh have given these uh, time frames. And amongst non-Muslim historians, we find some of them saying that the beginning was 1750 years BC, in that time period. And others said that around 800, meaning that it was rebuilt and redone uh, multiple times. Tayyib, in the Quran, we see the reference to Aram, Al-Aram. Al-Aram in the, in the tafsir, ulema have said that this is a reference to the dam that was built in Yemen. And we have some ahadith from a sahaba radiyanhum giving tafsir of the ayah. So we do have in Surah Saba a reference to this dam in, in the Quran itself. Then we have multiple sahih ahadith that this was built by a man named Saba. And the qawm of Saba was named after him. Saba ibn Yashjab ibn Ya'rib ibn Qahtan. This is from the children of Qahtan. This has been mentioned uh, in multiple riwayat authentically. Ibn Kathir, Ibn Ishaq and others accepted these. That he was the one that originally started to build it. This dam was something of a يعني, uh, amazing feat. Even amongst non-Muslim historians, they have put it amongst the wonders, the engineering wonders of the ancient world. And even non-Muslim historians have said this is something amazing. The Muslim historians have given it the name Sad al-Irn. And this is going back to what is called in the Quran as well. But it's also called Sad al-Ma'rib uh, in other kutub of tarikh. We know that this was something that the people of Yemen had built to try to collect the rain. When the rains would come, they tried to collect it. And it was something that benefited the land of Yemen, and it was something that was well known throughout the world at that time, and even till today, non-Muslim historians have wondered at its glory and how a people in that time with, without technology were able to build such a dam. There was a king named Amr ibn Amir, and, and Kutub of Tariq sometimes mention him as Amir, but what is correct is his name was Amr ibn Amir, and he saw a dream. And in his dream, and again, Al-Bidayah Al-Nihayah and Ibn Kathir Al-Dahabi and others have mentioned this. In his dream, he saw that there were rats eating away at the base of the dam. At the base of the dam. So he asked the people that were around him from the people of knowledge. One of the things we find a lot in the, in the old يعني, times was dream and the interpretation of dreams. And we know about Yusuf and so on. And we know dreams are of three types. There is a dream from shaitan, and sometimes that tries to lead you towards something haram. There are, there are dreams that are just mixed thoughts, like something you thought about just going through your head. And there are dreams that are part of wahi. Now this dream that he had, when he went to the people of knowledge, they told him that this could be an indication that the dam will break. Right? And he took that as a serious sign. So what did he do? He didn't call for a mass, mass exodus. He didn't say everybody pack up and go. Right? 
Now this, I mean, these are people that are not Muslim at this time. I mean, we're not saying what he did is right or wrong. We're just explaining what happened. He said, I'm going to escape. And I want my children and the people around me to escape. But I don't want everybody to go. Because then any, uh, uh, Max uh, uh, Exodus will make places crowded and so on. So he made a trick. And this is authentically established, right? He told his youngest son to slap him in a gathering. This is a part of history that you don't really read about, right? Again, you can look it up in Bidayah and Nihayah, uh, and all of them. So, he was sitting in a gathering, and his youngest son, now this was unimaginable to the Arab, right? with the respect and things they had, something they couldn't imagine. His youngest son walked up, obeying his father, slaps him. <laughs> When he gets slapped, he says, what kind of people are you? <laughs> like, what a place that I live in that something like this can happen, I'm leaving. <laughs> and he made that an excuse to leave. And he took with him his, most of his children. He had many, many, many wives and many, many children. But most of them he took with him. And he took his advisors and people that were close. And some of the Arab tribes that were very, I mean, they had a lot of love for their leader left with him. But most of the people were like, you know, whatever happened, happened. I mean, this is our home, this is everything. So they stayed. When he left, the ulema of tarikh here, for example, they talk about Banu Ghassan. And if you don't know who Banu Ghassan are, uh, the Ghassaniyah are an Arab tribe that were settled in Sham during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa don't know if you saw, there's a video in one of the OMF videos where uh, a German professor came and debated with us. And when we told him Banu Ghassan, he had no idea. And he was supposedly an expert historian on Sham, right? But Banu Ghassan, and it's well documented in non-Muslim history books as well. They were Arab, but they were settled in Sham. But how did they get to Sham? Because Sham is not an Arab land. Arab are originally from Yemen. And we talked about the three types of Arab and so on. And then they migrated within the Arabian Peninsula. But the areas of Sham, the areas of Egypt, the areas of Iraq, most of what is Iraq today was not originally Arab. Northern Africa, all these areas are not Arab areas. They're Musta'arab, and they're Arab today because of speaking Arabic and so on. But Banu Ghassan are ethnically Arab. And how they got to Sham is just this incident. That they left Yemen and they went and settled in Sham. And uh, Banu Munadir, yani who were called uh, that after Nu'man ibn Munzir, he was one of the kings and he was one of the people that left. And I mean, his ancestors were ones that left and they settled in the area of Iraq. Khuza'a, the tribe of Khuza'a, and we talked about them earlier. This is actually when they left Yemen and they went and attacked Mecca, as we talked about in the earlier dust. We're kind of going back and explaining a little bit. And this is why they left Yemen and then they took Jurham and they took Mecca from them and they settled around those areas. Some of the Bedouins, they, some of them became Bedouins. The Arab, after leaving here, they became Bedouins. Some of them settled in the land of Iraq, even though Iraq was at that time ruled by the Persian Empire. Uh, and some of them, they continued to travel all the way to Sham and some of them went to different areas in the Arabian Peninsula and so on. Amr ibn Amir, the one who originally left, he went and settled in Iraq. He went and settled in Iraq. And at that time, there was a, a Persian king that ruled Iraq. And with the permission of this king, uh, he settled over there. There is also other tribes that went with him like Banu Lakham. Uh, and many others that are given by the ulema of tarikh. But we'll uh, continue here inshallah. 
Regarding the, the Persian king, um, there are some different names given by historians and so on. We can talk about that. I mean, it's not so important, but uh, no doubt that it was somebody that was lenient towards uh, Amr ibn Amir because of their earlier treaties and so on. So he allowed them to stay. Uh, one of the problems is that they were very heavily involved in magic and shirk. This is unfortunate, but this is the, the time that it was. So after he left, the dam did break. And the dam breaking destroyed a large amount of uh, the population, killed a lot of them. And Amr ibn Amr, instead of yani, giving the credit back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have warned him, he rather accredited the magicians and the people who, who were his advisors with the early news. There now, a new king, he took hold and he learned this lesson. Like he took a lesson from what happened with Amr ibn Amir. So he, unfortunately, he brought the, the people who are called Al-Kahin. Kahin are, are, are sorcerers, you could say. They are fortune tellers. They are people who yani, try to deal with magic and jinn. And 99% of the time, they'll be wrong. They're guessing. But 1% of the time or so on, or about so, they will be right. And how do they do that? As we know from the Qur'an, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the orders to the malaika, yani when the qadr is decreed, and when is the qadr that is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah knows it. When are the orders given to malaika? And those orders can change. Like when the order was given to destroy the qawm of Yunus alayhi salam, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changed that order and allowed them to be. The qadr that's with Allah does not change. That is from the knowledge of Allah, that does not change. But the orders given to malaika can change. The malaika can be given an order to take somebody's life, but Allah already knows that because of something, Allah will extend their life, and then Allah will tell the malaika, don't take their life. Tayyib. So those orders when they are given, there are shayateen that try to eavesdrop. You know like how we have hackers nowadays, when you send an email and they try to check your email in the mean when it's going. They try to hack those orders and get to know some of the news. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shoots the shooting stars at them. So there, sometimes some of that news reaches them. Sometimes they have that. Most of the time they don't. Right? But it is sometimes true. So sometimes they would know. So here, the next king that came to be, to rule that area after that destruction, his name is Rabi' ibn Nasr. Rabi' ibn Nasr. He took a lesson and he kept a strong group of advisors that were all involved in these types of magical practices to advise him. And he saw a dream. He saw this dream and he told his magicians and advisors about this dream. And he said, give me the meaning of this dream. And these are all authentic narrations. The advisors told them, this is a very difficult dream. We don't know the meaning of it. They didn't just, you know, throw it out. They, they knew that if they just made it up and then it was wrong, the king would, you know, give them their due. So they didn't just give them an answer. They said, there are two magicians, sorcerers, who are the best, who are the top, who are the most in touch with this jinn and magic and all of this. So send for them. One of them is Satih and one is Shiqa. Satih and, and, and Shiqa. 
these two, and, and you can look through across the board in the books of history, and as well as references to them in the books of the Persians and others, of non-Muslim historians had mentioned them as well. That these two were heavily involved in sorcery and magic and were very famous for it. But they were kind of independent. They weren't really under the king's authority. But the king, he sent for them and they were brought. And he put them in different rooms. He put them in different rooms. And he asked each one. First, he asked a shiq. He told him, I've seen a dream. Shiq told him, don't tell me your dream. Don't tell me your dream. I will tell you your dream and I'll tell you the meaning. King was like, what? That's impressive. Go for it. And Shiq told him the dream and the meaning. Now here, the king was impressed because he had not told him the dream. But Shiq knew the dream and the meaning. But he told his men, ask Satih, Satih separately. Satih was separate. He was not involved in this conversation. When they went to Satih, and told him, Satish told him the same thing. He told him, don't tell me the dream. I will tell you your dream and I'll tell you the meaning. And he told him the dream and he told him the meaning correctly. I mean, in the same way. Here, the king was impressed. Before I tell you the dream. And before I tell you the meaning. I want to make a point. Why do we stress so much on authentic narrations with the seerah? Because from the seerah, we also derive aspects of aqidah. We derive fiqh. Most ulama are very lenient in the seerah. We depend on a lot of weak ahadith and so on. But we need to be very careful with that. Because as I'm discussing this, we're going to discuss something that has to do with aqidah. Right? And this is why people always tell me, just tell me one book of seerah. No, one book of seerah is going to cover all of this. And that's why we go to all the different books, and we go to the original source, and we go to the asanid, and we do all that checking. Why? To make sure that what we are getting is authentic and that we don't corrupt our aqidah or our fiqh or our manhaj and so on in relying upon weak narrations. So this narration is authentic, but before anybody gets tempted that, man, that this really is true, man. You know, I have a dream, maybe I go to a kahin. I want to make clear. If you go to a fortune teller, inshallah, I hope somebody clips this part out and makes a clip from this, right? If you go to a fortune teller, if you go to a palm reader, if you read the horoscope, and you believe in it, this is kufr. It takes you outside the fall of Islam, you become kafir. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. If you want to look up the Arabic at hadith number 5957, in the English it's 5540. In Sahih Muslim, Rasulullah whoever goes to Al-Kahim, min shay'in, an shay'in, to ask him about anything, and they accept it, if they do not accept it, sorry, the Raya and Sahih Muslim, Lam Taqbul, and he does not accept it, then his Lam Taqbul, his Salah is not accepted for Arba'in Layla, for 40 nights, yani 40 days. If you go to a Kahin, just for fun, you see a fortune teller sign, you're like, yeah, let's just go check it. I don't believe in that stuff. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna open the horoscopes, and I'm a Cancer or Virgo, whatever, Aquarius, whatever Shirk there is, right? I'm just gonna read it for fun. I'm not gonna believe in it. 40 days, your salah will not be accepted. Sahih Muslim. Anybody that goes to a fortune teller, 
or a palm reader, or checks a horoscope, or looks at the stars and assumes that, or goes and asks one of these, uh, what the Najumi, Najumi, they call them Najumi nowadays. Muslim countries are filled with this shit. You go to Muslim countries, you see big signs, big palm, Najumi, Fulan, Najumi, this. Wallahi, if you go and visit them just for fun, even not believing in them, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi in Sahih Muslim has told us, authentic narrations, 40 days, your salah will not be accepted. Muslim countries, the newspapers filled with horoscopes. Muslims that make salah and go to the masjid. Oh, you're a cancer. If you marry a Virgo, then this will be like this. Oh, if happened, wallahi, what's wrong with this? Then we wonder why our dua is not accepted. 40 days, you still have to make salah. It doesn't mean that you're off. You still have to make salah, but none of it will be accepted. If you go, in Abu Dawood and in Sunan al-Bazar, Muslim Imam Ahmad, Imam Ahmad it to be Jayyid, the Takhrij of Sunan Abi Dawood mentioned it to be Sahih, authentic narration. If you go to a Kahin, فصدقه, and you believe in him, بما, يعني what he has said, بما يقول, what he said, فَقَالَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ وَسَلَمُ فَقَدْ كَفَرَ بِمَا أُنْذِرَ عَلَى مُحَمَّدٍ Subhanallah. If you go to a fortune teller, and you believe in what he said, he tells you, marry this person, don't marry this, your hand, this line means this, and this means wealth, and this means this, and this means, and if you go see this, then your husband will love you, and if you do this, then your wife will love you, or vice versa, or so on and so on. You go believe in it, Rasulullah said, فَقَدْ بِالتَّوْكِيدِ كَفَرَ You have made kufr in what was revealed to Muhammad You made kufr of the Qur'an, you made kufr of the Sunnah, you made kufr of the Sharia. You are now kafir. Your talaq is done. Your wife is no one, she loves you or not. Your, your, your husband now is talaq on you. You have to take your shahada over, you have to make your ghusl over. Kufr. And then you go, subhanAllah, to some of them and they do ta'weel for you. The guy doesn't make salah. He's sitting there najis, kafir. He's going to write you a taviz now. Allahumma sta'ala. What was the dream? In the dream he saw, in some of the narrations, a dark-skinned people coming from Habasha, and attacking and conquering the land of Yemen. In some of the dreams, some of the, the, the rawayat, they mention actually a skull raising from Habasha and coming and taking over the land of Yemen. But the meaning here, across the board, both of the two magicians they told him, is that a king will rise from Habasha and conquer Yemen. Now remember, this is before Abraham. This is before... Abraha's attack was يعني, when Rasulullah was born. We're talking about يعني, a good thousand plus years before Rasulullah. So the king here, he became Rabi'ah. He became concerned. يعني, his followers, the followers of Rabi'ah, the king there, they, they had their own manhaj. And now they were concerned that these magicians had told him something that would come true. And remembering Amr ibn Amr, the one who was the king before, and the dam that had broken, 
he took it very serious. So he told him, how long will, will they, that you have brought us some very serious news, will they rule forever? He, they told him, no, they will rule about 70 years. And then they will be taken out and they mention other kings and then, and in that series, these magicians, this is the first miracle, write it down. These magicians said, and then after that, a time will come of a Nabiya Zakir, of this great, purified, intelligent prophet that will come. And in some of the rawayat, they, they said, this is the Khatim al-Anbiya, this is the last of the Anbiya that will come. And they were better than Qadianis. <laughs> so they said, then this last Nabi's time will come. And his kingdom, his Nabuwa, his rule will, will be there till Akhir al-Dhahr, until the end of time. Now this king was not a Muslim, as I told you, right? So he was shocked. He said, Hal lidhar yani, Is there an end of time? He didn't believe in the Day of Judgment. Yani, he, he thought time would be forever. And these magicians said, no. We have heard from the jinn. We have heard from the malaika who have stolen this news that there will be this Nabi that will come. And he will be the last of the prophets that were sent. And his prophethood will be till the time will end. And the time will end. Right? So this king, he became afraid. And knowing about the time's end coming, he decided to follow the example of Amr ibn Amir and leave the land of Yemen. At-Tabari in his tarikh, Ibn Kathir, all of them have this across. That Rabi' ibn Nasr took his close companions with him and he left Yemen in anticipation of Abraha and that which would come. And it did happen. That did come true later and we'll talk about it in tariq. And he went to Iraq as well. At that time, the Persian kings still ruled Iraq. Right? And this is how current day Iraq has so many Arab. Even though this land was originally also under the Persians. But many of these tribes they did move there. So Rabi' ibn Nasr, he went to Iraq under the control of a Persian king, which in Islamic, yani the Arabic uh, kutub of tarikh, is called Shabur ibn Khurazad. Shabur ibn Khurazad. I looked this up in some of the Persian books of history, pre-Islamic books. And it seems like he is Shapur. His name is Shapur. But of course in Arabic, they don't have the P. Um, Shapur the first, it, it, it corresponds with him. So he allowed Rabi' ibn Nasr to also come to uh, Hira, uh, area in Iraq, current day Iraq, and move there. And after he left, the people of Yemen, seeing this king that had left, they got another king who is commonly called Tubba'ah. Tubba'ah. But what is correct is that his name is not Tub'a. Tub'a is a title that would be given to the kings of Yemen. The kings of different areas had different titles. Like Habasha, they're called Najashi. Najashi is not one person, this is a, a title, right? Qaisar, Kisra, these are titles, right? Qaisar being for the Roman, Qisra for being from the Persians. Shah is also used as a title for kings and so on. Like this, the kings of Yemen in this time period, they were called Tubba. 
But his actual name, as mentioned in Sahih, Marfu'a Hadith from Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is As'ad Al-Humayri. Yeah, Al-Himar, uh, Humayri. Humayri, hum, this is a, a series of kings. As'ad is his uh, actual name. Abu Karab is his kunya. And many of the kutub, they mention him by his title, Tubba'a. Tubba'a ruled Yemen now, after Rabi' ibn Nasr. And Tubba' loved travel and trade. He loved to travel and he loved to engage in trade. So he would take a delegation with him. And with him, an entire army would travel. It would not just be him. He would travel with the whole delegation and he would have a trade delegation and they would have goods with them and they would have weaponry with them and they would go through the lands. And because Yemen was a very strong kingdom at that time, it was the strongest of the kingdoms in the Arabian Peninsula, the smaller tribe would be very hesitant to mess with them. And they would, they would travel and they would be honored. And when they went to the lands of another tribe, they would take what they like. They ruled with such force. And this is something interesting. The kings of the past, they could travel without fear. They would just go. Kings and presidents today, and miskin, and you feel bad for them. They sit there in a little room, and he's scared, body doubles and security. And if they want to go to another land, they have to get permission, and they have to deal with security. And usually they're just and he's sitting behind their little secret service. I mean, alhamdulillah, our life is better than them. We go anywhere. I mean, I was just traveling right now, I was in Virginia, I could go anywhere. Alhamdulillah, I don't have to worry about security or anything. Alhamdulillah, we, we live like kings. And the kings live like cowards nowadays. But the old kings, I mean, they used to travel with, with the whole I mean, entourage and, and they didn't ask permission, they just went. Right? So he would, he would just travel. And one of the places he would travel through on his way to Sham was a place called Yathrib. Maybe you heard of it. Mm -hmm. I will mention it as Yathrib here because this is a historic name that was given at that time. Yathrib is mentioned in the Quran uh, Surah Ahzab, it's mentioned, Ya Ahlul Yathrib, yani, but there is a time when Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam changed the name of Yathrib to Al-Madin. It's also uh, yani called Taba and Tayyiba and other names have been given in Ahadith. After that time, to reference Al-Madina as Yathrib, not discussing the history of it, but after that time, is sinful. And I'm mentioning this because many Muslims, till today, they will reference Medina as Yathrib. And they make little songs. Yathrib Kemali. I'm not a good singer. Right? But in reality, they're sinning. To call Medina Yathrib today is a sin. You are looking at me with some eyes that I can tell where you're like... Where did this guy get this from? I never heard this before. Right? This guy's pulling it out of a hat. No. Everything, inshallah, in these durus will be bi adilla. The hadith, muttafakun alayh. We have tulab ilm. We teach them the sab'a, the sitta, the khamsa, the arba'a, muttafakun alayh. So then we don't have to explain it. But uh, here, for those that don't know, what does it mean, muttafakun alayhi? Yani, sahih al-Bukhari wa sahih Muslim. Okay, just for a fun. According to the Ibn Taymiyyah, Taqidin, and Majduddin, what is Muttafaqun Alayh? Including the Musnad Imam Ahmad. But anyway. So this hadith is reported by Bukhari and Muslim. There is no doubt to the authenticity 
where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi sallam, he said, Yaqulun Yathrib. Yani they say Yathrib for here al-Madin. Who is they? Imam ibn Hajr al-Qulani in Fath al-Bari, he explains it from a hadith from the Muslim Imam Ahmad, where he says that whoever calls al-Madina Yathrib, they need to make istighfar. This hadith sanadan has some weakness, but it is supported by a number of other ahadith that show it to be authentic. Fath al-Bari brings a number of ahadith on this and shows that this was the way the munafiqoon, the hypocrites would call it Yathrib even after Rasulullah called it al-Madin. So Rasulullah said those munafiqoon, the references to the people of Nifaq, the hypocrites, they call it Yathrib, but it should be called al-Madin. So after that time onwards, we should not refer to the city of Yathrib as Yathrib. We should refer it to as Medina. Or Al-Tayyibah, or Taba, it's also mentioned in Hadith, that's fine. But Al-Madina, Medina, Al-Nabawiyah, or whatever, all of those are fine. But we find especially many of the Sufis today, in their little songs and dance, and, and it's something interesting, right? They call Medina Yathrib. Which Rasulullah sallallahu forbid. And they mention the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi without saying sallallahu alayhi wa And then they're like, we're Ashiq al-Nabi. Which the word Ashiq has, you knew Arabic and you wouldn't say that anyway. But even if you were yani, lovers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa then when you say the name Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa you would say the Darud alayhi salatu wasalam. But you see all these nasheed, they don't say the Darud on it. And disrespectful. And they call Medina Yathrib. Rasulullah sallallahu forbid it. In another rawaya, as Ibn Hajar has mentioned, that verily Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala samma al-Madina al-Taba. Yani Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala called it al-Madina al-Taba, yani the tayyib, the beautiful, the cleansed. That this is something that was from wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Here we will call it Yathrib because this is before the time that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa changed the name. We're looking at historic reports. Here, Tubba' whose name is As'ad al-Hamiri, he goes and he goes and trades in Medina. And he likes this, this city, Yathrib at the time. And he leaves one of his sons there. And he goes, he tells his son, make relations, trade with the people, live, enjoy. I will go on to Sham and then I'll pick you up on the way back. He goes on to Sham. But his son, yani he deals with the people in a way of harshness. Yani he's a king, you're a prince. And sometimes when you're a prince or a king, you sometimes forget that in the end you're a abd of Allah. You start thinking about your different visions and different plans and things, and you forget that in the end you have to go give account to Allah. So he yani treated them not well. And the people of Yathrib were Arab. And they were honorable people. And there were two tribes that had left Yemen. And we talked about them before. Al-Aws and Al-Khazraj. Al-Aws and Khazraj. Remember those names because we will deal with them throughout time. Al-Aws and Khazraj. Yani when I was reading about them, they remind me of yani, some qaba'il that we see in uh, certain areas of the world today. You will get the hint. Um, they love to fight. And they would continually fight. And if there was nobody else, they'd fight each other. And when there was, if they didn't fight each other, they fought within each other. And if anybody from the outside came, they would fight them. 
and they were not afraid of fighting. And they would fight for generations. And they would, they would say, you want to fight? We'll continue. Right? But they were very hospitable. They were very honorable people and hospitable people. Originally they were from Yemen, but during the earlier times, during the times they had, they had migrated and settled in Medina and they were farmers, they used to farm there. When the son of this king, foreign power there, messed around, they killed him. They didn't care. They killed him. They said, you don't play here. Right? When that news reached his father, he was very upset. So he sent some of his soldiers ahead of him, and then he was heading down to Yemen, and as I said, he would travel with an army. So he was going to attack Yathrib and destroy it. On his way there, his soldiers got there first. They saw some palm trees, date palm trees, and they climbed, they started to take the dates. And the owners of those trees killed the soldiers. So this man, the king got really upset. He's like, these people, man, they killed my son, they killed my soldiers, it's on. So he attacked Yathrib, and, and, and a very harsh battle began. What's interesting is here you had a lot of the Aus and Khazraj. You also had Yahud living there. Aus and Khazraj were Arab. The Yahud were not. I mean, maybe you had some Yahud that, that uh, converted some of the Arab and so on, but, but ethnically they were from the land of Sham. We understand why Aus and Khazraj was in Yathrib. Why? Because of the dam breaking and the different times, the different things that happened in Yemen and how they left. Got it. But what were the Yahud doing in Madin? This something that Mr. Wood didn't understand. Here, the Yahud in their Torah, and we'll give a hadith on this, don't worry. They saw the signs and they found that the Torah told them that the last prophet will be in this area of Hijaz. And the Nusra will be given to him, the, the place of Hijra will be Madin. And he will have a connection to Madin. Now, somebody may say, where is that in the, New, in the Old Testament today? Let me make this clear. The New Testament as you have it is not the Injil. Many Muslim brothers and du'at that maybe shouldn't be du'at, they talk about, we believe in the Bible because the Injil. No, 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 no. The Injil is what was revealed to Isa ibn Maryam. Jesus, peace and blessings be upon him, Isa ibn Maryam. What was revealed to him is the Injil. We believe it in 100%. What you have today from the writings of Paul and Peter and John and X, Y and Z and unknown authors of Hebrews and this and that, this is not the Injil. There may be some aspects of the teachings of Isa ibn Maryam in it, but this is not the Injil. This is the work of some Greek pedophile, gay guy, uh, who wrote things up and, 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 and lied upon Isa ibn Maryam and lied upon Allah and from his own hands he wrote it and attributed it to Allah. The Old Testament that you have today is not the Torah. It may have aspects of the original Torah in it, like maybe some of the commandments and so on. Maybe. We would have to evaluate with the Quran. But we know the original Torah, as it was revealed to Musa, alayhi salatu was lost. 
And every Jewish historian who is factual will tell you that. But from what they call the oral Torah, what is the oral Torah? From what they remembered and memorized and said and sang and prayed in. From that they collected parts of what is today and it went through changes as well. Right? And that's why you see, for example, in the Catholic Bible, even the Old Testament has a different number of chapters and so on. Just making this point clear. But from the actual teachings of Musa والسلام, those Yahud, and this is before Isa ibn Maryam even, those Yahud knew that Rasulullah would come in this area, so they made hijrah. They moved there to hope that, they, that the Prophet Muhammad would be from them. And if not from them, at least they would give Nusra to the last Prophet. Aus and Khadraj, they were fighting. They were ready to fight. The Yahud were not involved in the fighting. They were like, this is between you Arabs. You guys deal with this. We're going to do our trade business. Right? So, Aus and Khadraj, what's interesting is they would fight this king, Tuba, in the daytime, but would bring food for him and his army at night. And that was from the Diyafa, from the Ikram of the Arab. And that is a sifa, I mean, not found a lot nowadays. May Allah protect us. Right? Nowadays you go to some countries and the first thing they're worried about is your package and hotel and how much we can get money from you. But the Arab, before they had very good sifat. They were very strong fighters. They were people of Ghira, but they were also very hospitable. So they said, we will fight these people because they have dishonor, but they're guests. So we'll feed them as well. <laughs> So they would fight them in the daytime and bring food for them at night. Tuba was impressed. He said, these are Arab. They, they have the qualities I mean, that, that we value. That even though they fight us in the day and they're harsh fighters, but they still are hospitable and they're honorable and they're feeding us. And this impressed him. But one of the things that happened, and this is authentically reported across the board. And, and Banu Quraida, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qaynuqa, these three major, remember these tribes, they will come up again. These three tribes were there from the Yahud. From them were ulema, scholars of the Yahud. And these Yahud at that time were the Muslims of the time. Even though they had some innovations and things like we have amongst Muslims today. But remember, this is before Isa ibn Mari. So these were the last still upon the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So some of them were on Tawheed. And they were following yani the Sharia of their time. So two of them, that were scholars. And these were people of Tawheed. They went out to meet Tubba. Now, when I mention this incident, I want to mention something. Because every time I go through this, some researcher who's not a researcher, but thinks they're a researcher, is going to hear a narration and be like, ah, Sheikh Fulan said this is da'if. We're not looking at one sinner. Okay? If you look at the Asanid in Tariq Dimashq of Ibn Asakir about this incident, they are da'if. But if you do want to research, look at what Ibn Kathir has in Bidaw al Nihaya, in the Takhrij of Bidaw al Nihaya, and what uh, other Imma and Ulema, like in Akhbar al Makkah, have given with authentic narrations about this rawaya. So here, these two scholars, they went out and they told Tubba that do not attack Madin. What you're doing is wrong. 
Because this is the place of hijrah. And this is the place, in this area, the last Prophet will come, and his Nabuwa will be here, and that is why we are here. And that is why you should not war against, uh, go to war against a people like this. To back, seeing the impressive nature of the people, and being reminded of this, it, it affected him. And he ended the siege on Medina. And he told these people that, tell me more about this man. And they told him about the Prophet Sallallahu and they mentioned his name to be in some of the riwayat. They mentioned Muhammad as well, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in some of the narrations, they also mentioned to him Ahmed, as we know is also the name of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. What we find, as Ibn Kathir has mentioned, that this man, Tubba' was also As'ad. Uh, he, Abu Karab, he brought Iman in, in the Risala of Rasulullah Sallallahu before the Prophet was even born. And in the riwayah that is mentioned Marfu'an. What does it mean Marfu'an? From Rasulullah Sallallahu We're not depending on some Israeliyat or something, no. He says this is reported from Rasulullah Sallallahu that he said that, that this man said, Shahidtu ala Ahmed annahu Rasul min Allah. That, that he said, Tubba said, I bear witness upon Ahmed Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that he is a messenger from Allah. And he said, Falaw mudda, if the time of Umri, my life, extends ila Umrihi up to his life, then I will be he, lakuntu, I will be waziran lahu. I will be a supporter, an advisor to him, like Ibn al-Um, like a nephew to him. And I will be for him jahid, yani I, will, I will perform jihad next to him, be safe with a sword against his enemies. And I will, I will take away from him, faradstu yani an sadrihi kulli ham. Every hardship, every sadness that comes, I will support him and take it away from him. Subhanallah, this man wasn't even alive when Rasulullah was alive. But when he heard this message, he believed in Tawheed, he believed in the oneness of Allah, he believed in the Risala, in the message of Rasulullah And he made a niyyah, that if my life is there, that matches up, if, if he comes during my lifetime, I will fight next to him, I will be his supporter, I will, be, I will make sure that no harm comes to him. And these are authentic narrations. Rasulullah sallallahu has mentioned him in other narrations and I'll mention them. But this narration is also from the Prophet sallallahu This man, then he took these two scholars. Now we're moving away to the tarikh riwayat from Ibn Kathir. And he told them, be my advisors. I have entered Islam, but now I want you to teach me to rule by the Sharia. He didn't say, let me go get some Westerners so they can get our economic policies going. No, he told them, look, you are the people of knowledge. So I submit my kingdom to you. You tell me how to run it according to the Sharia and I will run it. And these two ulema, they went with him to advise him. On their way now, they left Medina, and they're going back to Yemen. Hudayn, the famous Arab tribe Hudayn, they met this army. And Hudayn had an evil in their heart 
against this man. Yani, as I mentioned, the tribes, they, they would get, yani, for lack of a better word, they would get punked by the kings, right? The king would go through, they would take what they want. So they had like little makar, they wanted to make some plans against uh, the king. So Hurail played a trick to try to kill them. They couldn't, they couldn't fight him. He was too strong. So they said, we'll play a little trick. Building suspense. They told him, we know a place where there's a ditch, a little valley, filled with gold. In some of the riots, gold and silver. And it's there for your taking. I mean, who could stop you? You're a king. So go and take it. So he told him, where is this? He said, there's a little city called Mecca. Right? It's called Bakka in those bits, but anyway. And in this city, there's a, there's a little house called the cow. And in front of it, people go and, and just leave silver and gold and treasures there. I was like, wow, really? Man, I'm going to take it. Right? So he turned to go towards Mecca. And this was their trick. The people of Mecca couldn't fight him off, obviously. But the idea was that these Arab tribes knew this is Baytullah. SubhanAllah, at that time, they knew this is Baytullah. And they knew that anybody that attacks Baytullah, Allah will defend it. And this is before Abraha. Don't, don't think this is after that. So their trick was that he would go attack Mecca to take this gold. And that gold was given nadran. And people who were giving as a nadr to Allah. As a sadaqah you could say. Right? So when he takes it, the punishment of Allah will come and he'll die. So this was the trick. So he turned around and he went towards the Kaaba. But these two ulama, and that's why... Always stick to the people of knowledge. It's a nasiha in case some king or prince or president or mayor or anybody watches this. Always turn to the people of knowledge. Knowledge is what protects. But this king was intelligent enough that he went to these people of knowledge. He told them their plan. They told him, don't do that. This is Baytullah. You're going to attack Baytullah? You want to be the enemy of Allah? Subhanallah. Now, think about this, right? Little point. How easy of a decision is it? If I asked any of you, do you want to go to war with Allah? What would you say? Huh? Like a hundred people sitting in over there. Would you want to go to war with Allah? Huh? Why do you take riba then? Anybody that takes riba, declaring war with Allah. How many Muslims deal with riba? How many ulama, imams? It's okay, brother. It's okay. Well, good luck taking that ally against Allah. This man was intelligent enough that he said, I'm not going to go war with Allah, astaghfirullah. He said, what should I do? He said, no, go and make ikram of this bait. And make tawaf of it. As those people of Tawheed before like Ibrahim and Ismail and other from the Anbiya did. So he went to Mecca and he slaughtered camels and sheep as sadaqah. And he fed the people and he made tawaf. But he looked at these scholars that they weren't doing it. So he asked them, that why is it that you don't do it? They said that we don't do it because right now people have brought shirk here. They have brought idols. And we are ulama of Tawheed. And if we do it and people see us doing it, then people will think that it's acceptable. 
We allowed you to do it because yani, you are not somebody that uh, has enough knowledge yet. For you, just to respect the Kaaba is perfectly fine. But for us, we know. So we are waiting until that last Prophet comes and he cleanses the house. And it will happen. Another miracle about the Prophet. And when it happens, then we will make tawaf. So after that, he saw a dream, according to some of the ulema of tarikh, that he covered the Ka'bah. And he asked those ulema about this. And they told him this is a, a dream from Allah, and you should cover the Ka'bah. And he was the first one to put the Kasab, I need to cover Al Ka'bah. The first one to put a covering on the Kaaba was Tubba' As'ad Hamiri. Now, this became as something that we see as a Sunnah for the Kaaba after that. All the time after that, it's been done. But this was the first one to do it. Tayyib, do we have a clear hadith from Rasulullah for this? Yes. Ibn Kathir has mentioned in Bidayah wa Nihayah on As-Suhili. Some of these riwayat are from Waqidi. Some of you will go home and look at them and be like, Ha! Ah! got Abu Yusuf again. Not so fast, bro. Right? Those riwayat from Waqidi are da'if. But many of these riwayat, like those in the Muslim Imam Ahmad and the one from Ibn Abi Hatim, do not have Waqidi. They're authentic narr- narrations, including from Tabrani. And we'll mention the narration from Aisha as well. But Ibn Kathir, he has from Suhili, that rawa from Ma'mar, عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال يعني the Prophet ﷺ himself said لا تسبوا don't curse أسعد الحمري the طباع فإنه أول من كاس الكعبة because he is the first one that covered the Kaaba don't curse him another riwayah from the Tabrani in the Muslim Imam Ahmed رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم himself said كان قد أسلم he became a Muslim he was a Muslim in Al-Hakim from Aisha radiyanha, she said, كان تبا رجل صالحا This Muqufan from Aisha radiyanha, so authentic from Al-Hakim, because of the other reporting reports, that she said he was a pious man, that he was a pious king. Tubba now headed back to Yemen, and on his way back, he stopped by Hudayl, and he dealt with them, and all those that had made them makar, he slaughtered them, and, and, and he put them down. And he went back to Yemen with his ulema to rule by what he took to be the sharia of that time. Now, the rest of it will come, inshallah, next Saturday. Jazakumullah khairan.